melt away, don't they? Amen. Thanks so much, guys. That was great. Amen. Uh, I've got a little Bible sword drill for you, so get your Bibles out. Get those Bibles out here. Let's see if you're ready to go. And uh, see if you can find... i just got five for you tonight, just five verses. Oh, yeah, right, okay, here we go. Last time you had to do it for me, so let's see what happens. The purple one, right? It lit up a little. It looked like it did something, but I didn't hear anything. You didn't hold it down. You punched it three times. <laughs> here it comes. All right, a little, little warm in here. Get it cooled down. All right, these verses, uh, most of them deal with our topic tonight, thinking about the cross, thinking about the Lord and what he did for us. So um, I'm going to read off the first reference. You hold up your Bible, repeat the reference after me, then I'll say charge, and you can go for it. No thumbs or fingers in the, uh, in the pages now, okay? And um, see if you can be the first one to find it. Just start reading it nice and loudly. If you're way in the back, I might not hear you, so got to make sure you're nice and loud, okay? All right, so I'll read the verse out loud. You repeat it, then I say charge, then you go. Okay, ready? Here we go. Here's the first reference. Galatians 6.14. Charge! There we go. May I never boast of anything save the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a great verse. Nothing else can we boast of than our love of the cross. That's good boasting there. All right, here's another one. Good job, Bing. Here's another one. Old Testament here. What's he looking it up on his device? What? What? He's got his device open there. Wow. I need the NFL commissioner in here. This is worse than Deflategate, I think. Wow. What do you think, Andy? There you go, Andy. It's called a book. They used to read those things before, you know, technology came in. All right, Psalm 2216. Psalm 2216, one more time. Charge. That's it, Psalm 22:16, Messianic Psalm. They pierced my hands and my feet. Hundreds of years prior, the prediction of Jesus' death by crucifixion. All right, that's ladies and the men tied up right here. We're going to count Bings for the first one, okay? We won't give him any other chances, though. He gets one freebie. All right, here's the next one. Also Old Testament, here we go. Ecclesiastes 12.1. 12, 1. Charge. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Sandy had that too. It would have been ladies either way. So good job, ladies. You got that one. And um, it's a great verse. 
Serve him now while you have opportunity. All right, I've got a couple more here. Judges 720. Judges 720. Charge. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That's one of my favorite passages. A great, great story there. Did he have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of men to, to fight these guys? He just had 300, didn't he? Yeah, great victory for the Lord. All right, one more, and this is going to be the tiebreaker. Ladies have two, men have two. Here's the tiebreaker. Ready? Daniel 3.25. Daniel 3.25. Charge. Form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Jeremy, you were just right behind there, weren't you there? Oh. <laughs> Ladies, uh, yes. The little tabs, well, yeah, yeah. I think they're harder to fumble with, those little tabs, you know, than, unless you're really good at it. Well, thank you for your uh, good job in looking up verses in the Bible. And uh, that's a good exercise to just keep ourselves fresh on where things are. And uh, how many could you re- could you recite Genesis to Revelation right now? Could you do that? How many could do that? I won't call on you. Don't worry. Okay, someone could do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's a feat that I think uh, is not as common for people to be able to do it much anymore. Uh, but it's a good it's a good skill to have. Well, uh, I'll take your Bibles. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to talk with you tonight about the cross. And I've just entitled this, The Center of Your Life. The Center of Your Life. You know, I was thinking about the cross. And, uh, you know, just standing here looking around, I see a cross on the back window. We see a couple on the tapestries on the side here. You probably have one on your Bible cover. Maybe it's the inside flyleaf of your, of your Bible. Maybe a jewelry item in the shape of a cross. A lot of symbolism connected with the cross. Some of it good, uh, a lot, some of it bad, uh, symbolized by the cross. The German swastika is a form of the cross. Uh, if you study that out, that was a, just a form of a cross with the little things on each end of the cross. Of course, the German aircraft had the German cross as a part of their aircraft and as a way of recognizing them. So it, so it had kind of a negative connotation, of course, with, uh, with that particular movement. In the 60s, you saw a lot of the upside-down crosses. Uh, we were told it symbolized peace. And um, I think it sometimes meant other things as well. And uh, Jesus used it, in a, I think in a negative sense, but as a challenge. If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross. Any man will be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. And uh, there's that challenge uh, to do something that costs everything that you have to give up your life. To take up that cross is to be willing to die, to carry it to the crucifixion site and to be crucified. Take up your cross. There were other Christian symbols in the early first century. There was a symbol of the fish. And um, uh, the fish in Greek, it was pronounced ichthys, ichthys, 
And that became a symbol for Jesus because those, those letters would stand for Son of God, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so the little fish symbol became an important part of identifying other believers. Great tradition in the fish there. But the cross, I think, really stands above and beyond that. Worldwide, it perhaps may be the most recognized symbol of all. And uh, something that we certainly can take delight and joy in. The first reference we looked at uh, may, I never, may I never boast in anything save the cross. The cross of Jesus. Now you think about Paul's words there. Let's just take a look at it real quick here. It was Galatians 6.14. Uh, we understand that there are two forms of crosses the Romans used for crucifixion. There was the, uh, the, the Tau cross, which was like a capital T uh, the cross beam would go right at the very top of the upright 8 to 10 foot beam shaped like the letter tau or T and then there was the uh, one that we often think of uh, with, the, with the actual piece above it the, uh, the cross beam is lowered on the cross traditionally that's the one that Christ was crucified on perhaps because we know that the Romans placed a superscription above his head uh, that uh, in three languages laid out his charges king of the Jews Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews um, as we portrayed on Good Friday, most uh, Bible scholars believe that Jesus probably didn't carry the entire cross. It just would have been so heavy. Um, the, the cross beam itself may have been up to 100 pounds. Uh, with an 8 to 10 foot cross uh, upright section as well, it might have been nearly impossible for a, a healthy a man who hadn't endured beating and blood loss and been uh, awake all night to do, much less a, a scourged man. But the cross has so much symbolism for us. And when Paul writes these words, God forbid, verse 14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ, neither circumc- Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. So Paul is saying, of all those things that I used to boast in, all the good things I felt I had done, for the cause of God, for the cause of Judaism, for the cause of the, Pharisee, the Pharisees of which he was a member, had been a member, those are nothing to me. He says, my one boast is in the cross. That is the one thing I take pride in, the one thing I take joy and delight in, is this cross. And whether Paul was thinking of the, 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 the Tau cross or the, uh, the, the lowercase t cross, really that's not the point. It was a form of execution. Um, and it was on that cross that Jesus died and shed his blood. And that is what he points out in the end of this verse. It's by that cross, or by whom? By the, by the Jesus who was on that cross. By whom, personal pronoun, by whom? By Jesus who was crucified on the cross. The world has been crucified to me, put to death to me, and I have been crucified to the world. So it's not just the cross of Christ he's thinking about. He's thinking about by believing on Christ, he went through his own crucifixion in which the world was put on a cross and crucified to him. That is, its power over him was put to death because of the cross. The world has been put to death uh, with reference to the Apostle Paul. And I to the world, because of the cross, my desires and longings and, and fleshly yearnings for the things that the world has have been put to death had been mortified. And then he talks about the new creation in the end of verse 15. Well, I think what Paul is saying is this is a priority. Everything else 
is below this. The priority of his life is the cross and, and all the meaning that it, that it contains. I want to ask you, what's your priority? What is most important to you in your life? Maybe th- at this time of your life. What's priority number one? What defines you? And I don't mean an emergency situation where you've got to run out of the house or you've got to help a, a, a vehicle that's had an accident. You know, we don't understand priorities in those situations. But in the course of your life, what is the number one priority? For some, it's career. Others, it may be a relationship. Maybe my family. Maybe my ministry. Maybe my cause. Some cause or some uh, political affiliation. Uh, for many, they, they are completely passionate about that particular cause, whatever it might be. And I might suggest that maybe for some there is no center. There's a, there's a lot of things kind of thrown in the picture, but there's not really necessarily a center. They're all kind of maybe equally or lesser, to a lesser degree important. So there's a lot of things that, uh, and maybe many people fit into that as well. Uh, back in my 20s, I remember reading Stephen Covey's book, um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, of course, and, uh, and uh, First Things First. And just uh, some of the, one of the things he said in that book, it's not a Christian book, it's just a, it's a, it's a book about, I think, making priorities and thinking and, and how to be effective in your life. And some of it, I think, has some biblical basis, but I'm not recommending it as a, as a Christian book. It's not something you're going to read and hear the gospel. But one of the things Stephen Covey said that in his journey he had found was that I try to think about what people are going to say about me at my funeral. I, I know I'm not going to be there. <laughs> I'm not going to be there to hear them or, or uh, cry or laugh or whatever. But to think about what people might say when they gather for my funeral. And to think, what would I like for them to say? Of all the things that my life did in the, those years that I lived on this planet, what would I be remembered for? And that's a very thought-provoking question. What do I want people to remember me for? We remember the Apostle Paul, of course, as a great church planner, as one with an amazing conversion testimony, as an effective writer and speaker, though not uh, known as a flowery orator. But perhaps we mostly know him as one who lived his life for the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a great thing to be remembered for. To be remembered as one who helped people find freedom in Christ. And that was certainly a passion of the Apostle Paul's. You have lots of relationships and so do I, but which is a priority? Which one has the greatest priority? Let's go look at 1 Corinthians now. We're going back to where we had, had you earlier. 1 Corinthians 15. Another letter by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about this gospel in verse 1. Then we'll look at verse 3. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, or the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. And then down to verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to talk about his burial and resurrection. But this, this predominant thought of the cross... That's what I preached to you. That he died. That of course he was buried. And that he rose. And he was seen. Many people saw him, including myself. And he himself became an apostle. Perhaps like one born out of due time. I think that was the center of his life. What Christ did. And uh, 
That cross really stands, many of the charts and maps we looked at, some of them even in our Bible, kind of divide history. And we even do that today, before and after Christ. Maybe, maybe it's not so much the cross, but, but more his birth. But the idea that, in general, we divide human history by that place, the life of Jesus, and how it began and how it ended at the cross. It's a pivotal point in the way we use our years, B.C. and A.D., But I think it also can be a symbol of our lives too. Maybe as you give your testimony to others, there's the before Christ and there's the after Christ, after I met him. Here's what I was before I became a believer. My life was, I was foundering, I was lost, I was was, uh, not on the right track, I was confused. I was in darkness. Then I met the Savior and everything changed. My sins were taken care of. I had a living, vital relationship with my Creator. And I have enjoyed a grateful walk with Him ever since. And so the cross kind of becomes a, a, a mile marker for your life. The, the darkness before the cross and then the light after the cross. But what's your priority today? Has the cross become kind of humdrum for you and me? Perhaps those of us that have been saved for decades. Has the cross become... Just a symbol, something that we like to have around, but maybe more a decoration than anything else. I'd like to just read to you, even as we prepare our thoughts for the Lord's Supper, the account of the crucifixion from Luke's Gospel. And uh, you can follow along if you like, but otherwise I encourage you just to listen. Uh, When these scriptures were first written, they were circular letters. And they would be passed around to the various churches, and they would be read aloud uh, by those who could read. And very often congregations would listen and sometimes try to memorize portions of these readings. And so let's do this as perhaps they did in the first century. Let's listen to the record of Christ's death and crucifixion. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, And women also who mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were, hang, uh, were, um, 
one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. John Stott, preacher over in England, wrote these words, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. Jerry Bridges, author here in the U.S., written a number of excellent books, wrote, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. That was in his book, Discipline of Grace. D.A. Carson, a great uh, evangelical writer, said these words. He said, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. I think that's a very insightful comment. The idea that maybe the cross, we try to keep it in the center, but somehow over time, the things around the edges start moving in closer and begin taking more priority than they ought to the point they might even displace the cross. Let me suggest three threats to the cross being central in your life. I think one of them is subjectivity. Subjectivity. That's when I begin to base my view of God on my own feelings, my own emotions, my own wants and wishes. Subjectivity. When the Christian life becomes an experience that's merely subjective, we begin to distance ourselves from the teachings of the gospel. You see, the Bible, as we study the epistles and all of the rich theological explanation of the cross, never leaves it up to us to say, well, it can be whatever you want it to be. It can be an inspiration. You can uh, paint pictures because of it, write music because of it, pen poetry because of it. Um, It's whatever you want it to be. You know, that kind of leads to what we call today relativism. And and, uh, in a way, that is a form of idolatry, an idolatry of myself, whatever I want to be important. But even as believers, perhaps subjectivity can, can take a place. When the Word of God is clear on what it means to be saved, 
do I begin to throw in my own feelings of what should and shouldn't be a part of my salvation experience? Do I begin to doubt my salvation simply because I haven't been faithful in my devotions? I haven't shared the gospel with someone recently. And subjectivity says, I might, be, I might not be saved anymore. I might need to be saved again. Or I might not have God's blessing. God might be angry with me. And uh, I got sick last week, maybe because he's punishing me for not uh, you know, missing church one Sunday. Where the subje- subjectivity begins to tear at the concrete foundation of salvation by grace alone through Christ. The power of the cross. We sang that beautiful song. We stand because of the power of the cross. We don't stand because of the power of ourselves. We can't stand on that strength because that's no strength at all. We stand on His power. So subjectivity can wear away at us if we're not careful and begin to question and doubt what the, what the true meaning of the cross is. I think a second threat is legalism. Legalism. Uh, and, and it kind of may be overlapping a little bit with that subjectivity that I begin to base my relationship with Christ on my performance. How well I'm doing. Um, you know, like wait for the coach to say, good game, good game. You know, I did well, I did well. I'm not on the bench today, so I'm doing well. And I feel saved, therefore I must be saved. And, and uh, to keep myself saved, I've got to make sure I do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this. And suddenly grace is out the window and we've brought in works and we're back under the law. And that's a form of idolatry, isn't it? Paul battled that incredibly in his writings. Um, legalism in one side of the Roman Empire where the churches were and uh, kind of a form of libertarianism on the other where they thought they could do anything they wanted, you know, and, and, and be fine. He was battling both fronts at the same time. And our heart goes out to uh, the Apostle Paul as he, in a sense, saw many things happening to the churches he'd planted that, you know, he would plant them and they'd be on the right track like the church in Galatia and then it'd start falling aside. They'd start wanting to go back to Judaism and, and keeping the Mosaic Law and he had to remind them not to do that. Legalism. A third threat, I believe, is self-condemnation. Self-condemnation. In other words, we can tend to become more focused on our own sin than on God's grace. And we never want to be distant from our sin. We have to recognize our sin is real. It's, it's a serious problem. And we never are rid of it until we're glorified. We are still going to battle this sinful human nature as long as we're in the flesh. But self-condemnation can get to the point where we never seem to think victory is possible through Christ, that I see myself as a perpetual failure and that I can never sing that great song, Oh, Victory in Jesus, that I was able to say no to sin. I was able to say no to temptation. I was able to be the kind of husband or father that God wanted me to be or the wife or, uh, or a mother that God wants me to be uh, or to fit the role that he's called me to be. I can never achieve that because I'm a perpetual failure. I think self-condemnation can threaten us and our view of the cross. Because if it really is all about ourselves, then we really don't need the cross. If we can save ourselves, if we can keep ourselves saved, and if our salvation is dependent upon our performance down here below, then we really don't need the cross at all. Do we? And so not only is the cross displaced from the center, it may be removed altogether by one or more of these threats. Placed on the periphery, on the back corner. What's at the center of your life? What are your dreams, your goals, your visions, what you plan to see accomplished in your life? And where does the cross fit in with that? 
Where does the Great Commission fit in with those dreams and goals? Where does the Great Commandment fit in with those dreams and goals? I think periodically all of us are prone to wander, as a songwriter says. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Believers, we can stray sometimes. And I think that's where being together as a body, once a week or more, can help us see that more clearly. When we rub shoulders with one another, we realize, you know, I'm really not where I need to be. And when we can have mutual fellowship and be honest with one another, we can help each other get back on track. Take a look at Galatians chapter 6 for a moment. I really think he's talking about a believer here who's been overtaken in a fault. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Galatians. He's speaking to the church at Galatians and had lots of issues. This is the church that was struggling with legalism. But he reminds him in this practical section towards the end, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. I think what's happening there is Paul is calling on the church to do this regular spiritual maintenance that we all need from time to time. For some to come alongside us, as a, almost like a, a paraclete, like the Holy Spirit calls himself, to come alongside of us, to walk along with us, and to help us get back on track where we have drifted. Where the cross that was initially the center of our life, the center of our dreams and goals and, and hopes, uh, has maybe been shifted to a little bit to the side. And maybe something else has usurped its place. Other believers can help us see that. As I've mentioned before, I think accountability can help us recognize that. Where we hold one another accountable, whether it's to our spouse or to another person that we trust, another believer, to allow someone to ask us these probing questions. Where are you with Christ right now? In a sense, that's what this table is about. Where are you with Christ right now? What's your relationship with Him like today? As I wrap up my thoughts and before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I think there's a key to keeping the cross at center. And maybe there's other keys. Whenever there's a speaker that says, I've got the key to something. <laughs> yeah, right. That's your key. I've got a whole, whole keychain here of other keys people have given me. But I think there is one key to keeping the cross at center. And that is to never move on from the cross. To never get over the cross. To never say, okay, I've done that. Let's move on to something else. What's next? To never get over the cross. I think it's, in a sense it's a key of marriage too, to never get over your passionate love for this person, to never get over that, to constantly remind yourself of uh, the excitement and the joy uh, that was a part of our early dating years, to never get over this person, to think, ah, oh, I'm going to move on to something else now, what's next? To never get over that. And I think it applies to the cross as well and to our relationship with Christ. To never get over that joyful excitement of our conversion, of our baptism, of those first studies in God's Word. We begin to learn such wonderful riches we never even were aware of. We're in the Bible. David Pryor, a Christian author, said, We never move on from the cross only to a more profound understanding of the cross. And I think that's aptly put. Do you lack joy in your life tonight? Do you find yourself failing to grow consistently spiritually 
in your maturity? Do you sense a love? Uh, your love for God lacks passion, like it maybe it once had? Are you seeking for some new technique or experience that you think will pull it all together for you? That may be a symptom of the cross isn't in the center, and you may have gotten over the cross. I think when you do have the cross at the center, these will be describing your life. You'll not be bound uh, by the joy-robbing false ways of thinking that are all around us. We're not going to let that rob us of our joy in Christ. We're not going to let that, those false philosophies, uh, the get-rich-quick schemes, or I've got to have a lot of stuff to be happy. I think it also means you'll leave behind the crippling effects of guilt and self-condemnation. I can claim freedom and joy in Christ. He's forgiven me and I accept that. We have to accept that forgiveness. We, just praying for it and asking for it is one thing, but we have to say, yes, I have it. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that I have your complete forgiveness. And I'm no longer, Romans 8.1, no longer under condemnation. Right? And yet so many people I have met trying to serve Christ are under a lot of self-condemnation. When the cross is at the center of your life, you'll stop basing your faith on emotions and experiences. And the cross will remain solid and firm despite whatever life throws at you. That shows you the cross is where it needs to be. And finally, you'll grow in gratefulness and joy and in holiness. You know, when we stand at the judgment day, Stand at that beam of seat of Christ. All other truths, philosophies, experiences, feelings, they won't make any difference. All that will matter on that day is my relationship to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's what's going to stand the test. And if I have followed the teachings of God's word and embraced the cross meaning the work of Christ who died on that cross, I'll stand firm in the judgment and I'll pass with flying colors. At this time, we want to move into our celebration of the Lord's Supper tonight and we'll ask our, our 